And now, here they are, the Beatles! Hi, I'm Justin Shears, and welcome to Only a Northern Song. In this series, I'll be exploring the words and the music of the Beatles, but not through the usual tracks that we all know so well. I'll be delving into my extensive collection of outtakes, home recordings and demos, alternate mixes and interviews, to shed some new light on lesser-known aspects of the Beatles' recorded legacy. Hey, can I have a word? Uh, are the Beatles going to go their own ways in 1967? They could be, you know, on our own or together. We're always involved with each other, whatever we're doing. Could you ever see a time when, in fact, you weren't working together? I could see us working not together for a period, but we'd always get together for one reason or other. I mean, you need other people for ideas as well, but, you know, and we all get along fine. What's this, the songwriting team thing will keep going on, whatever happens, will it? Yeah, we'll probably carry on writing music forever, you know, whatever else we're doing. Because you just can't stop, you, you know, you find yourself doing it whether you want to or not. But you think the tours, like the American tours and the English one, you know, the well, stands in England... You know, there must be a point where they don't work anymore because they're not to do with what we're doing, record-wise or film-wise. Paul, good evening. Hello. Can I just have a brief word with you? Yeah? If you never toured again, would it worry you? Uh, I don't know. No, I don't think so. Wouldn't worry you. But because the only thing about that, you see, is that... Uh, Performance for us. See, it's it's gone downhill performance because we can't develop when no one can hear us. You know what I mean? So for us to perform is uh, it's difficult. It gets difficult each time. You mean they don't More listen difficult. to you, and therefore you don't want to do that? Oh yeah, we want to do it, but uh, if we're not listened to, then and we can't even hear ourselves, then we can't improve in that. We can't get any better. So uh, we we're trying to get better with things like recording. How are you? Can I stop you? Well, have a brief word with you. Uh, I, want, I just want to ask you, <laughs> do you think that in the new year that you're going to be going your own ways instead of being no, a group? No. No? No. Definitely not. What about another word? How are you? Merry Christmas. How are you? <laughs> fine, fine. Can I ask you a few questions? Uh, yes, yes. Well, then I'll turn you around this way then, all Which right? Way? This, this way. way. No, this Hello? Way. You're looking very smart anyway. Uh, yes, I am. Well, I had a bath. What's all this about that the Beatles are going to do less together in the new year? The thing is, you see, to do things together, the four of us, it's going to be the old things all over again, you know. You and don't so, want to do that. No, we don't want to do, you know, what we've done already. So the thing is, because of the film, you know, we can't get a decent script, or we're still trying for one. If we don't do that, we'll most probably all do something else different, you know, for next year. On your own? Yes, but, I mean, it's, it's not like breaking up. We'll still be coming back together at the end of it. Do you foresee a time when, in fact, the Beatles won't be together and that you'll all be on your no, own? No, no. I'm sort of out of it there because with John and Paul, they can still write even though we're sort of not working together. And George can, you know, learn his sitar and do things like that. And I've just been sitting around. Getting bored? Uh, no, getting fat. <laughs> but have you fed up of being sort of Beatles the thing is a Beatlemania? We can't do a tour like we've been doing all these years because because our music's progressed, we've used more instruments. It'd be soft us going on stage, the four of us, and trying to do the records we've made with orchestras and, you know, bands and things. So we'd have to, if we went on stage, we'd have to have a whole line-up of men behind us. Are you getting bored of being the Beatles after all this time? No. I'm having a great time. <laughs> Merry Brilliant. Christmas to you. Long well, time since you. I've seen you. Thank you very much, Ringo. That's all right, thank you. Are you uh, going to work now? Well, I'll see what they're up to. I think it may be tea time with any luck. Yeah. Bye. Thank you.
As the Beatles approached the end of 1966, they had made a firm decision to stop touring, leaving them more time to use the recording studio as their new, almost exclusive medium. With the need for an album approaching, they had recorded Strawberry Fields Forever, John's nostalgic nod to his childhood home in Liverpool and the district in which he'd grown up. That sense of nostalgia would play an important role in the upcoming album and the songs which would eventually form the double-A-sided single that would precede it. As the sessions for Strawberry Fields drew to a close, or so they thought, the Beatles' attention turned to a new song by Paul, or, like Michelle a couple of years earlier, a song which Paul had written as a teenager, but had only just gotten around to putting lyrics to. Strawberry Fields Forever I wrote that when I was a kid on the piano, the melody of it. Yeah, I think I was about 16 when I wrote that, yeah. But didn't record it until 1967? Right, because I never had words. It, it, ah. was, it was a... And it was in the style. But then later, I'm glad I waited, because if I'd written the words then, they would have been in the style. Whereas I wrote it later, so there's much more tongue-in-cheek. 64 yeah. was something Paul wrote when was we were it? in the cabin. We just stuck a few more words on it, like Granny on your knee and Vera, Chuck and Dave. It was just one of those ones that he'd had that we've all got, really. You yeah. know, there's half a song that there's all those. This was just one that was quite a hit with us. I think we used to do it when the amps broke down, you know, just sing it on the piano. Possibly prompted by the fact that his father, Jim, had turned 64 in July, Paul added some futuristic lyrics to his old melody. And on the 6th of December, 1966, Two takes of Paul's latest number were committed to tape. Take two. When I get older, losing my head. Many years from now Will you still be sending me a valentine Birthday greetings, bottle of wine If I'd been out till quarter to three Would you lock the door? Will you still need me? Will you still feed me? When I'm 64 have gone You can knit a sweater by the fireside Sunday mornings go for a ride 
doing the garden, digging the weeds. Who could ask for more? Will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? Every summer we can rent a cottage in the Isle of Wight if it's not too dear. We shall scrimp and save. Grandchildren on your knee. Vera, Chuck and Dave. Send me a postcard, drop me a line, stating point of view. Indicate precisely what you mean to say. You're sincerely wasting away. Give me your answer, fill in a form. Mine forevermore. Or will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? Take two of When I'm 64, initially recorded with just Ringo on brush drums, Paul on his Rickenbacker bass, and John on an almost inaudible electric guitar. Paul added his lead vocal two days later, in a session with no other Beatles present. While work continued on the remake of Strawberry Fields Forever, Paul's charming new ditty was put aside for nearly two weeks giving George Martin a chance to score the three clarinets that they felt would add to the jazzy feel already achieved. After a reduction mix to a new tape was made, the 20th of December saw backing vocals added by John, Paul and George, as well as Ringo tapping out melodic fills on chimes. On the 21st, the trio of clarinets played by Robert Burns, Henry McKenzie and Frank Reedy was added to finalise the track.
isolation mix of take four of When I'm 64. In the mixing stage, very speed was used to increase the speed of playback, thus increasing the pitch by roughly a semitone, to give Paul's voice, at the ripe old age of 24, a more youthful sound. Compared to Strawberry Fields Forever, this was a very straightforward recording. With the new year rapidly approaching, there was just enough time to squeeze in the beginnings of another of Paul's tunes. One, which, like Strawberry Fields Forever, was inspired by Paul's childhood and adolescence, growing up around the streets of Liverpool. Penny Lane is a, not only a street, but it's a district. I lived in Penny Lane in a street called Newcastle Road. So I was the only actual person that lived in Penny Lane. It's kind of central when I was growing up because it literally it, it's a bus depot. We used to call it a bus depot. So if you take one route of bus and you've got to change routes and go off this way, it's Penny Lane that you change at, you know. So when uh, John and I were writing songs later, we often used to just hark back to places that we both remembered, you know. Um, and I came up with this idea for Penny Lane. There'd been a barber shop, which is still there, actually, where, you know those haircut photos where you can choose what haircut you want? It's kind of, it's, a, it's like a, almost like a pop art kind of thing, those photos. So, you know, that got the line, there's a barber showing photographs uh, of every head he's had the pleasure to know. So that's him. And then on the other corner, Penny Lane, is uh, a bank. So I made up this story about the banker and the motor car and the children laughing at him. And then just down the road, there is a fire station. So we made up the story about the bloke with the clean machine. and tied it all together. And then uh, the last verse is uh, behind the shelter in the middle of the roundabout, which is the Penny Lane thing itself. They're just memories, really, you know, pulled together and uh, given a kind of slightly poetic treatment. And uh, it's really just memories of my Liverpool childhood.
Take six of Penny Lane, at this stage still untitled, recorded on the 29th of December 1966. Paul initially laid down a solo piano on track one of the tape, and then again on track two, running the second piano through a Vox guitar amplifier with added tremolo. Ringo added tambourine simultaneously. With the tape running at half speed, track three was yet another piano part, this time the studio upright played by Paul, as well as the first appearance of Ringo's drums, hence the sped-up feel of both instruments when played back at normal speed. The final track on the tape was used to add harmonium, again played by Paul. The following day, a tape reduction was made mixing all four tracks recorded so far to a single track on the new reel, called Take 7. Vocals were then added to this, but replaced in subsequent sessions. Rough reference mixes were made for the band to take away and decide where to take the song in the new year. The Beatles reconvened in Abbey Road Studio 2 on the 4th of January 1967, ready to pick up where they had left off a few days earlier. More vocals, another piano, this time played by John, and a guitar part from George were added to take seven, but never used. Instead, they were erased to make way for the final vocal tracks by Paul and John, recorded on the 5th. Add to this more piano, drums, bass and congas, and another tape was full ready for yet another reduction mix to a fresh tape, this time called Take 8. Yes, clapping them. For a fish and finger pies. Should I do that harmony? Boom, boom, boom. could do that, you know, if they suddenly decide that it needs it there, like... Forward from me. Oh, no. <laughs> the Beatles adding hand claps to take eight, experimenting with backing vocals and scat singing potential brass parts. The 9th of January saw the studio booked for six session musicians to overdub four flutes and two trumpets, with three of the six backing up to also play two piccolos and a flugelhorn. Thank <laughs> you. 
Stay on your E flat with the trumpet, so that you don't you don't go up to the E flat. Sorry, I'll, I'll stay on the E flat. Don't go up to the E flat. Let's hear it again. Right now, let's hear let's hear it with the trumpet. Does he want to switch right there? before the third bar. Oh, sorry, the third bar. Three. Uh, one, two. Ready? Third bar. Three. One, two, three. Session tape highlights for the flute and trumpet parts added to take nine of Penny Lane. Not content with the orchestral instruments added so far, two more trumpets, two oboes and two cor anglais and a double bass for good measure were superimposed the following day and a mono mix of the results was made. All right, mate. Penny Lane, there is a barber showing photographs Of every head he's had the pleasure to know And all the people that come and go Stop and say hello On the corner is a banker with a motor car The little children having him behind his back And the banker never wears a mask Pouring rain, very strange. Penny Lane is in my ears and in my eyes. There beneath the blue suburban skies, I sit and lean while back in Penny Lane there is a fireman with an hourglass, and in his pocket is a portrait of a queen. He likes to
Remix 8 from Take 9 of Penny Lane. The song was almost finished, but just needed something to give it an extra edge. But what exactly? Paul arrived at the answer while watching a concert on television. I actually saw the player, David Mason, on a telly. I saw him playing Brandenburg Concerto, I think, or something like that. And for that piece, you use this thing called a piccolo trumpet because there's some very high trumpet notes. So, they... so I said to George Martin, who knew about my reference for all that, what was that funny little trumpet he will have been playing in the Brandenburg? And I said, oh, it's great sound. It sounded fantastic. I said, maybe it's just what we need for the Penny Lane solo. So George did some research and found out who it was I'd seen, and it had been Dave Mason. So we got David down. Well, I received a phone call the next day from George Martin. And George said, well, are you free on tomorrow? And can you come along to Abbey Road? And I said, yes. And we arranged it. And just as an afterthought, I said, oh, who's this for? He said, oh, it's the Beatles. So I went along the next night and in walked these four. And I thought they were in fancy dress. So I said, have you just come off a film set? Oh, no, mate, we always dress like this. Paul sat down at the piano and George sat down with a piece of manuscript paper. And Paul played a bit on the piano and said, did London, can you play that? And I tried, and he said, well, a bit higher, or, you know, like that. And we went on like that for about three hours. Normally, those musicians, you've got to write it out. You can't just sing it and say, it goes like this. You've got to actually have a piece of paper in front of them. So we spent half an hour and wrote the solo out and sort of made it up on the spot. Which is quite nice, because it's a sort of catchy little solo. There's a little book, and when you get taught orchestration, you get taught that the top note on a piccolo trumpet is, and I don't know what it is, but it's a high E-flat or something. And that's to help you. You should never write an arrangement with anything higher than that because he's not going to be able to do it. But, of course, they always can. They can go higher than it says they can go. George and I used to like to do that. And what they do, and they're really good, they read the part, and they sort of say, "Uh, you know there's an F here, don't you? As if, you know, you might have made a mistake, and we say, Mm-hmm. He said, well, it's officially sort of a little high for this instrument. Mm-hmm. And you sort of keep deadpan in on it. I should give it a go, should I? Mm-hmm. And so that way, you kind of stretch them. You give them something they didn't do on the other sessions. It adds a little bit of spice. And, stuff. and we did the same with David. And he said he cursed me for years afterwards because all he was being asked to play was this impossible note off the Penny Lane solo. For the grand sum of 27 pounds and 10 shillings, David Mason worked his magic into the song, having chosen the B-flat piccolo trumpet from the nine that he brought to the studio on the 12th of January, 1967. Monomix number 11 was deemed best 
and a copy made for a mercy dash across the Atlantic to be pressed as a single in the United States. It was this mix which included a trumpet coda, a feature which was later removed from the final mono mix and subsequent stereo mix. The fact that copies with these extra notes had already been pressed and distributed in the US and then replaced with the later mix made it an instant rarity and today a collector's item. With Penny Lane now complete, EMI decided that it should be released as a single, even though the intention had been, like Strawberry Fields Forever, that it would be included on the new LP. Packaged as a double A-sided single, the Beatles had produced what would come to be considered one of the greatest singles of all time, with strong themes of childhood, memory, and Liverpool itself. Penny Lane, there is a barber showing photographs of every head he's had the pleasure to know And all the people that come and go Stop and say hello On the corner is a banker with a motor car The little children having him behind his back Sky. 
They've got all these rules for everything, rules of how to live, how to paint, how to make music. And it's just not true anymore, you know. They don't, they don't work all those rules because you can't apply them because it means then that you're assuming that you know it all. And so all in all, this gang of people from International Times, Indica and the whole scene, you know, is trying to do, is trying to see where we are now and see what we've got around us, see any mistakes we've made, straighten them out. <laughs> you know, it's just a straightforward endeavor kind of thing, you know, just to do something other than what's been done before, because what's been done before isn't necessarily the answer. There could be another answer, you know. What they're saying and what they're doing is sort of nothing strange about it. It's just dead straight. But it's that they're talking about things that are a bit new. And they're talking about things which people don't really know too much about yet. And so, you know, people sort of put them down a bit and say, well, you know, weirdo, psychedelic and things. But it's really just what's going on around, and they're just trying to look into it a bit. And it's a straight sort of inquiry that they're doing. It's a good environment, you know. I fit into a neat little pigeonhole, which is like, <laughs> I don't know, rock and roll gone too far, you know. I think that's what people think. Of course, he's, he's cracked. He's nuts now. Trouble is that all these rules, people getting frightened once they see someone who doesn't agree with the rules, you know, because it's breaking the whole foundation of everything they believe in and live in, you know. So that when these weirdos, inverted commas, come up and say, you know, look, my hair's long and it's great, you know, and I'm growing a beard, you know, and I don't care about you and stuff, then the people think, well, you know, what is this, man? You know, he should stick along with it all like us. And then even if he says, well, you know, you're all wrong, your rules are wrong, they don't want to know, really. You know, because that's their life, that's their whole shell. So you can't really come along and just burst it. You've got to do it very gently and say, you know, look, I, I, I really wish the people uh, that, that look sort of with anger at, at the weirdos, at the happenings, at the psychedelic freakout, would instead of just looking with anger, just look with nothing, with no feeling, you know, be unbiased about it. Because they really don't realise that what these people are talking about is something that they really want themselves. It's something that everyone wants. You know, it's personal freedom to be able to talk and be able to say things. And it's dead straight. It's a real sort of basic pleasure for everyone. But it looks weird from the outside, but it isn't. The next time you see the word, any word, any, any new strange word like psychedelic, you know, drugs, the whole bit, you know, freak out music and all of that, don't immediately take it as that, you know, because your first reaction's got to be one of fear, you know. So don't, if you don't fear it, then you can look at it straight and think, well, you know, psychedelic, now what does it mean? And then somebody, somebody might explain, you know. But there is this other point of view where if you don't know anything about it, you can sort of trust that it's probably going to be all right. It's probably not that bad. Because, like, it's human beings doing it, and you know vaguely what human beings do. And, you know, they, they're probably going to think of it nearly the same way you would in that situation. And that's true, you know, you can trust to the fact that things are generally not as bad as you make them out to be. Well, that's it for this episode. Next time, we'll pull up another chair in Studio 2. As the work on Penny Lane drew to a close, sessions for another groundbreaking track began. Until next time...